You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. Good morning. This is the 3CR Gardening Show and I'm Virginia Haywood. With me are Stephen Ryan from Dixonia Rare Plants from 774 from 3CR with his blog, Greg Balderston who's the Projects Manager at Forest Glade and of course me, Virginia Haywood, a guide at the Botanic Gardens on the Committee of Plant Trust with Stephen and an Open Garden Selector. So good morning to all you people out there and Getting here, it looks like it's going to be a lovely day like yesterday again. Let's hope so. <laughs> I'm getting sick of frost. <laughs> yeah, it's been cold, hasn't it? Oh. It's a bit windy coming down, but uh, uh, Saturday was what a stunning day Saturday mm. was. And Saturday night, uh, after midnight or so, uh, went out and watched a bit of a meteor shower. Oh, how And fine. had the magpies singing that be- their beautiful night songs that they do. Um, and just the most stunning night on Saturday night as well. But, yeah, the, the winds picked up a little bit, but, uh, yeah. Well, Friday night, I've been at several 16 or 17 years. I was so cold on Friday night, I actually had a heater in my bedroom. I never. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I meant on. Friday night, not last oh, Saturday night. Because Saturday yeah. night's last, last night. night. Yes, yes, exactly. <laughs> I meant Friday night. Yeah. Yes, yes, well, it, it, it has was, been cold. Oh, it was so cold, <clears throat> I needed to put a beanie on. I thought, oh, mm. I'll put mm. a heater on. I ha- cannot have to wear a beanie in bed. <laughs> that, that's a bit naff, isn't it? <laughs> oh, dear. But, yes, look, it's winter and it, the weather is the weather and we have to put up with it if we don't like it. It's too bad. This is where I we love live. winter. Yeah, I, I don't mind it. The, the issue I have, of course, having an outside job, uh, a lot of the things you want to get done when it's really, really cold become difficult, mm. like dealing with damp potting mix on a freezing or soil coat. too. Yeah, yeah yes. soil's and probably worse than garden soil, <laughs> yeah, um, and trying to hand weed when your fingertips are freezing mm. and you're trying Actually, to get those little weeds out. remember once as a teenager when I was working at your nursery pulling the snow out of the pots before I get to the weeds. Yeah, yeah well, yeah, that can happen at Macedon too, <laughs> yeah. which is a bit bizarre, uh, but there you go. What do you but, do? But mm-hmm. even though it's been so cold, my heliotrope, it's mm. the first I lose to the frost. Mm. I haven't lost it this year. It's mm. been a really weird year. I thought I was going to get away with an awful lot this year because I've got a lot of frost tender and borderline plants growing in the garden. And, of course, we've got an opening coming up at the end of this month for, garden, for Open Gardens Victoria on the 27th and 28th. And, of course, this last week we had a couple of serious frosts. Mm. So my Wigandia and my Plectranthuses and uh, some of my Salvias and quite a few of the other things that were still standing up and looking quite perky, uh, my uh, D- uh, Brugmansia sanguineas, They've all gone black. Mm. So black is the new colour for folks who are coming to visit my garden at the end of the month. Because well, that's the problem. You can't prune them. No, if I cut them back, then you, if we get more frost, it's just going to go further down into mm. the plant. So uh, I'm just going to have to live with those you Spray paint them red. Oh, I've already done that to the miscanthus. Yeah, no, I, uh... I can't do the rest of the garden red. That would just be a little bit over the top. But uh, And it would cost me a 
fortune. It yes, cost me yeah, enough yeah. to spray the miscanthus the <laughs> other day. I hadn't realised how much a can of bright red spray paint was going to cost. Because um, so, one year I lost my Mexican tree daisy that way. Yeah. I, I just pruned it too early. Yeah. I pruned it right down because I prune it right down yeah. every year, you know, to ankle height. Yeah. And I pruned one and I didn't prune the other. The other's alive. The one I pruned is dead. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But yeah, usually for me, you see, the frost rolls off the hill and I don't yeah, get sure. that. Yeah, I'm, similar, I'm yeah. a similar sort of spot as well. But, yeah, uh, Friday night, Saturday morning, by I think 8 o'clock at night, you could see the little twinkling on the ground. Yeah, oh, yeah. <laughs> yes, it started in early. Yeah. Um, and of course, and parts of my garden are sheltered because of the big trees, but there's areas that do catch the direct, uh, like out around the vegetable garden area. Um, and, yeah, if we're going to get a frost, that's where it really that's settles in. That's the open in. spot. And, and there's places up on top of Mount Macedon that, where it's almost like a permafrost where it doesn't defrost even during the day. I know there's a spot in front of the glass houses at Forest Glade where the ice stays there all day because mm. it doesn't, this, it never gets hit by the sun and the ambient temp- temperature is cold enough to keep the Greg, ice frozen. Tell us about Forest Glade because some of the listeners won't know about it. Um, so it's a, uh, one of the bigger gardens on Mount Macedon. It's open to the public pretty much every day. Um, it's got an interesting history. It's not one of the older gardens, though. It's probably, uh, as, it, as it is, it's pro- since Ash, Wen- Ash Wednesday in 83 yeah, particularly. Yeah, a lot of the big areas of the garden yeah. were developed after then. But the garden itself dates back to the 20s. Yes, um, yeah. So the, the top part. There's some nice 100-year-old, mm. you know, trees uh, planted, yeah, about 100, mm. 100 years ago. That's why they're 100 years old. <laughs> yeah, um, sort of but, but the garden as it is really sort of started getting done since Ash Wednesday on the whole, um, there's a bit of everything. Um, and then some. And then some, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, there's some horrendous statues, but there's some really nice ones. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'm see, not a big the, fan the of the statues. Owner Cyril bought anything and everything, and he, he, didn't, he wasn't sort of selective. And so he bought. He no some, doubt thought he was being. Oh, and he mm. thought he was a great buyer as well. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. nonetheless, he, he. I think there were a lot of um, uh, auction houses out there that saw Cyril coming. And, you know, so they'd ring him up and say, oh, we've got this amazing piece of. Um, it's of the best in the world. Sculpture. That's all you had to say. It's yeah. the best in the world. And, yeah. and, and he'd, he'd buy, buy it. it. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, so there is some good stuff in the garden, but oh, yes, there is some tat. Yeah. Um, uh, but the plants are amazing. The collection of plants, a lot, a lot of which date back even prior to Cyril's time, because he was there from the nineteen sixties ish, sometime late sixties, early seventies, I think yeah, it was. But yeah, around yeah, around, around that time, uh, the previous owners, the Newtons, were also quite keen gardeners, and so they planted a lot of very interesting plants. They bought some quite rare rhododendrons, and they had things like Nothophaguses, the southern beeches, and all sorts of interesting plants that they put in. Mm. Uh, and then Cyril just went berserk and planted and planted and planted. Again, sometimes without much sense in the way he put no. things together. It was just that, you know, a nursery was closing up, so he'd buy the whole damn place and But And that sort of back. makes it interesting it's as quirky. well. Yeah, yeah, it is. It's um, quirky. I like mean, the, the rhodes, the rhododendron family, so the Isaias, yeah. molluscs and rhododendrons themselves, mm-hmm. I think since Ash Wednesday, he planted something like 40,000 of them or something in 15 mm-hmm. acres. So there's a lot of stuff in there. Yeah. And they're crammed um, in like and a they're, yeah. Like, yeah. So so one of the big jobs at, at the so, moment is like going that needs to be either chopped out completely or dug up and shifted depending on how rare or unusual it is. <laughs> so so Greg, when is it a good winter garden? Or is there, there's what, always something of interest there. Yeah. I, I'd say 
in order, autumn's probably the highlight of the year. Yeah, oh, it's uh, beautiful it, in the autumn. In yep. the spring, you need your sunglasses because the the pink azaleas and the orange azaleas mm. are screaming at each other. Yeah, there's a bit of a color clash. <laughs> uh, but spring, so autumn. Uh, when Gardening Australia filmed there a couple of years ago, they picked probably one of the best autumn days in that garden, nearly in its history. It's, it's some years you'll get a flush of autumn and it only lasts, it, it, not to say that it lasts one day, but it peaks on one day mm. and they filmed on that one day and captured it really well. Um, so if you wanted to see it in peak autumn, I'd have a look at the, the one that aired a few months back on Gardening Australia. Um, uh, so autumn can be, you don't know, it's mm. a surprise every year. Mm. It, of course. It might be a bit duller but lasts longer and then it might be amazing yeah. but it's only lasts for two or three days. Spring's a little bit easier. Uh, there's a little bit less people in spring uh, through the garden, especially on the weekends, but it lasts longer. It's 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 much longer season because mm. the first roadies start in sort of mid-August, I guess, yeah. or even early August sometimes. So that means that if people go up to see Stephen's garden <clears throat> the last weekend of August, they could also go on... Well, as I say, you can go to Forest well. Glade any day you like because mm. it's open every yeah. day. But you um, could. You could fill the day quite yeah. easily. Um, so you could come around to my garden. You could go up to Forest Glade. I mean, there's a, actually Mount Macedon's got a lot of things to do and people don't sort of realise that. And, in fact, Greg and I were both a few days ago uh, interviewed by a chap who's doing some podcasts for all the different towns around Victoria. And Mount Macedon won the Tiny Town Award for tourism recently, which everybody's all sort of very stoked about and chests are puffed out and all that sort of stuff. Um, and so part of the prize was, in fact, to have a free podcast done for the um, Shire Council. So it will go up on their site in due course. There's an app you can download, apparently. I've been promised uh, all the information I'll need on that later when, when they're ready to go yeah, to air yep. with it. Um, so... Um, um, and so I discussed some of the other things. I mean, you can you, there's, you can always go for a drive up to the Memorial Cross. You can always go up to the top of Camel's Hump for a, a view and a look at the interesting rock formations. You can go up to Sanitarium Lake, uh, which is a lovely walk from the car park. I mean, there's oodles of things to do around Plus, there, there are quite the, – I mean, Forest Lodge isn't the only garden that's Forest open. Forest Glade. No. Forest Glade is not mm. the only garden that's open all the time, is it? Uh, it is more or less at the moment because yeah. one of the previous gardens that opened pretty well all the time has recently changed hands and so is at the moment not open at all. There, there's uh, there's often gardens open, just not all the time. Yes. Yeah, yeah. So, mm. so you get, you know, maybe a couple of times in spring mm. and a couple of times in autumn, mm. a big weekend where a few mm. gardens are open um, and Stephen's Garden's open a fair bit and there's a few mm. others that are open what – most people would assume would be regularly, mm. but I don't. There's no other gardens that are no, open. No, Forest all the Glade's time. the only one that's yeah. open all the time, and that does raise the issue too. If people are thinking of making a trip up to Mount Macedon, and obviously, end of the month when my garden's open, I'd love you all to come, and I hope some of our listeners will come and introduce themselves and say they're 3CR listeners because it's lovely to meet people who listen in regularly. Um, but don't forget to put aside the first weekend in October because that's when Mount Macedon Horticultural Society have their big plant fair at Bolabek, which is one of our important and well-known gardens. 
gardens in the area. And this year we're expanding the whole process a wee bit. Um, we're going to have a shuttle bus leaving from the car park at Bolabek, which will take you to two other gardens on the mountain so you can do a circuit on that weekend. Uh, and one of the gardens is called Lewisham, which is out on Mount Macedon Road. And it's got some large lakes and uh, uh, some attractive trees. It's a comparatively new garden. And the other one that will be open that weekend is Durrell. And Durrell's one of our old hill station gardens. Uh, it's quite a decent sized garden. I think it's four or five acres. It's right next door right to Forest Glade. Right next door Clay. to Forest Glade, yeah. Um, and Durrell's the only garden on Mount Macedon that's got a piece of landscape that is authentic Edna Walling. So it's got an Edna Walling section in the garden. Um, and it's got beautiful big old oaks and, and, and mossy lawns. And it's just a, a lovely I've garden. I've done some stonework in there too, but it's near the cottage, so I don't think you can see it. <laughs> No, that's, that's sort of not part of the garden <laughs> no, I don't in think a so. sense. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, so anyhow, so that weekend's coming up as well. And of course, today is Arbor Day and people should be out planting a tree today. And later this afternoon, I will be because the Mount Macedon Horticultural Society, I think I've mentioned this before earlier in the year, is 100 this year. And so it's our 100th birthday year. And we had a big autumn festival where we had speakers and workshops and openings and art shows and all sorts of things that went on. And it was seriously successful. Um, we've got a tree planting this afternoon at the Golf Club Hall. I'm going to be planting a, a an oak that will hopefully be there for another 150 years or more. Um, a slightly unusual oak that people won't see very often. Um, Which uh, one? It's a cut-leafed form of Acer macroc- uh, macrocarpa, the burr oak. Uh, and you just said Acer. Quercus. Uh, Quercus, sorry. <laughs> um, I, I don't know why I'm thinking Acer. Um, but, yeah, so it's a burr oak, but it's a, an unusual seedling of it with a, a cut foliage. So it's quite a unique tree. So I'm really we're, we're both life members of yeah. there too, and I'd... I'd forgotten that it was on today, so I might try and make my way up there too. Yeah, two o'clock this <laughs> afternoon, Greg. Um, and so, yeah, so we today is Arbor Day. Uh, it doesn't seem to get a lot of press in this country, um, uh, but it's midwinter, or more or less, a great time to be planting a tree. Um, why not go out and celebrate Arbor Day and plant something? I mean, you know, that's what I'm doing this afternoon. Or... Go and look at trees. Yeah. Botanic, yeah. Engage with trees. Engage yeah. with, I mean, botanic gardens are another thing that are mm. open all the time. Mm. And, and there are so many botanic gardens in and Victoria. And regional parks too, especially mm. if you know an old growth or remnant old growth forest area mm. um, to see, you know, a giant eucalyptus regnans or a eucalyptus oblique that you can walk inside or something mm. like that is, uh, is pretty amazing, yeah. And yeah. La- after the show last weekend, I went up to Melton Botanic Gardens which is, it's, I think it's not that old. No, it's, it's only a couple of decades old. But it mm. is absolutely, mm. I think, extraordinary for how young it is. And it's, and it's got the most wonderful collection of small eucalypts. Mm. And I just enjoyed going around so now, much. They have a good nursery there too, I think, if you're after native I was, plants. Yeah. I was talking to Anne in the nursery there about the small eucs, and she's written me a, a, a short piece which I will put up on our Facebook page mm-hmm. on small eucs and some of the best ones because to plant a eucalyptus just without thinking is actually it's is foolish you need mm. to not you need to plant to size if you end up planting a regnans mm. which especially is, in uh, in a Fitzroy terrace house garden <laughs> well some yes. i mean david attenborough says that the that 
that is the biggest tree in the world and the only reason that this uh, the sequoia gets called the biggest tree in the world is because down. we stupidly cut them all down. Yeah, yeah, cut it down and then measure it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Oh, look, I think we just cut down the biggest one yeah. in the world. Yeah, and, of course, we can still claim biggest in a sense because Regnans is, in fact, the biggest flowering oh, plant in mm. the world. But so, David Attenborough says it's the largest tree yeah. in the world and mm. I'm... Perfectly happy to believe him. Yeah. Although standing <laughs> in, a, in a sequoia forest in Northern California is a pretty impressive sight. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. They can all be impressive. I don't, there's yeah. no, you don't yeah. need to have a... Yeah, we you don't need to be too it. parochial about it all. <laughs> Quite. Uh, but Anne in the nursery, she, she, you know, took me through quite a lot of the small ukes and it was just fantastic. Mm-hmm. And I do think people should visit their botanical I don't, I don't know if it's something that's done a lot in Australia too, um, and I think it's uh, – I'd heard it was done in England a fair bit because some of them don't like the coal over there so much. But coppicing gum trees can be quite interesting as well because you get the beautiful juvenile foliage on them um, and you don't have a big tree. Uh, and, you know, so, yeah, maybe uh, if you haven't got yeah. room for a big gum tree – yeah, plant Cop- one coppicing. and They do. I they think interesting they've got some coppice examples down at um, Cranbourne Botanic Gardens. I think okay. they do a few down there in some of their But you don't see it very often and no, it's strange because I do it at home only because I didn't want the tree getting too big but I didn't. I felt bad about killing it so I just cut it down. It was more pollarding, I guess, that I did with this one. Um, and, yeah, every three or four years when the, when the branches are a few inches thick and not mm. too big but because uh, I don't want to be doing it every year. Um, so I let them go to the couple of inches thick, the, the trunks, and they've killed a few of the weaker ones out, and then I just cut it all back down to the main trunk again. And yeah, which, of course, is something that some people, like the botanic gardens in South Yarra, do with smoke bushes. Mm. Yes, I do that. I think smoke bushes look much better when you coppice them, actually, with their huge leaves. Yeah, they get you much miss bigger, their flowers a little gutsier bit, but... leaves. But yeah. yeah, yeah. And coppicing and pollarding are one of those things that are... Uh, they're sort of lost arts a bit. People don't think about it. Um, I mean, if you go to Burnley and you have a look at the coral tree there, and there's a good one in the Botanic Gardens as well that is pollarded back to the same point every year. So you end up with this amazing thing that looks like it could have come out of a Harry Potter movie. Yeah, or a Joshua great, tree sort yeah, of shape thing. Yeah, yeah, this weird sort of big lumpy sort of ends to the branches, and they can be quite sculptural in their own That mind. one in the Botanic Gardens, it's an erythrina, and mm. it is absolutely Fabulous, mm. and if you grab one of the branches, the, they just the whole thing shakes. Flexes, yeah, yeah, because yeah. it's not got a lot of hard wood in it. No, so yeah. um, so and uh, some of the coloured stem dogwoods, like I, I bought one in, yeah, um, and willows as well. Yeah, uh, they need to be coppiced if you're going to get the good and they're coloured so stems. much better if you if you yeah. do it with mm. not and as you say, it's the leaves as well. It's you mm. get uh, much bigger sort of uh, fresher-looking leaves for the season. Now, maybe you could just explain for the listener the difference between pollarding and coppicing. All right. Well, it's it's basically the same principle. You're cutting back to basically the same point. But in coppicing, you bring things down to a low stump. So you might have a stump that's only, you know, uh, 30, 50 centimetres off the ground and you cut back, leaving just a tiny bit of the fresh wood that you've had come through each year so that you've got a couple of fresh buds ready to go. Pollarding is basically the same thing but done up on a trunk so that you actually then have more of a tree-like form but you bring it back to the same point. And, of course, the city councils in Melbourne used to do that with the plane trees mm. years ago and Which you don't see that done. Which made beautiful. In. They, mm. were, they were really quite interesting. I quite liked it actually mm. as a technique uh, but they've gone away from doing all of that now so they've let the trees go, which will have its long-term issues too because trees that have been regularly pollarded often get a little bit of rotted wood in the 
tops of them. So if you let that sort of adventitious wood keep going and become major trunks, it gets mm. quite heavy. And sometimes the trees will pull themselves to bits. Yeah. And, and a good example of that is uh, the the coppice birch forests in England, yeah. which some like birch trees, if you just let them grow, got a lifespan about 120 years or so. And these birch trees that had been coppiced for a couple of thousand years and were still alive, mm. and then they put a protection on them, so they went the people weren't allowed to coppice them anymore for for coal and fire, firewood. And within forty years or so, these birch trees started dying. So then they let them back into coppice them because that was yeah, basically what yeah. was keeping them alive. Yeah. And and like Stephen said, they've they've got these weaknesses in them from being pollarded and coppiced. But as long as you keep doing it, it's yeah. fine. It's only when you let it get this huge amount of weight of a tree on top of that weakness that yeah. it creates an issue, yeah. Well, I've got a, a gum tree that was – I don't think it was um, coppiced. It was just cut down. Mm. But it came back. This is before my time. And when I bought the place, when I moved in there, it was already a big tree but of mm. about seven trunks. Mm. Um, one While I was away, one of them came down and just – destroyed a big mm. piece of my garden. Yeah. And I think that this is the thing. It, yeah. Once it's done, it should be it should be kept, should it. keep doing yeah. it. Um, and it's a perfectly uh, reasonable practice. I mean, people worry about pruning. Um, but as Greg said, some of these trees will actually prolong their lives. Uh, in the case of some of the uh, coloured stem plants, like some of the willows and the dogwoods and things, you get your best coloured canes from something mm. that's been coppiced down on a semi-regular basis. Uh, well, and longer well, canes too. Red, red stem dogwoods, if you let them go, look yeah, they not look that good. They, they, yeah, you <laughs> at get all. Little tiny twigs at the end at that the were end this year's growth that yeah. is red and the yeah. rest of it is just grey twiggy stuff. Yeah. And generally, coppicing, you'd probably do to more shrubby, multi-stemmed plants yeah. that tend to shoot out a lot. And the pollarding, you'd do for more for uh, tree-like uh, plants, yeah. Well, the erythrina, which is just by the herbarium in the, in the botanic gardens, I mean, they, they actually have to have a cherry picker to do mm. it. You yeah. know, it's, it's yeah, high it's up where they cut mm. it. Yeah. yeah. And, and look, you, can, you mm. can manage the height to what suits you. I've got the same erythrina in the garden at Macedon, but I bring mine down to about a metre and a half stump. And so eventually I'll build up this great big gnarly thing at about a metre and a half, uh, metre and a half high. But the new shoots that come out of it each year on which it flowers, they can be three metres and more long, these great big arching canes, unfortunately, with some rather nasty prickles on them as well. So you've got to be careful when you go into weed or to prune, uh, I have to say. I nearly always get attacked by it every time I go in to do the, the, the cutting. And I guess mine, I'd call it almost a, a semi-pollard because it has got a trunk under it, but then I prune it up a little bit higher. Mm. Um, and it's actually in my perennial border, so I don't want anything that's going to become a large tree mm. because then it will overshadow the border and shade out a lot of the things I want to grow. And I'd rather have... The the flowers of the erythrinus more or less at eye level. Uh, some of them get up a little bit higher, but nonetheless so that I could look into the tree and flower and not way up at it. Mm. So, yeah, so it's a management thing. Yes, and, it's, and it is sensible because with the erythrina, it flowers actually around Christmas time mm. So and when a lot of other stuff have finished. So it's mm. lovely to have that mm. splash yeah. of red, oh, yeah. but low enough to coppice, see. Another good coppicing plant, the berberus as well, some of the um, like berberus thunbergii, mm. when you coppice those, you get these beautiful long canes on it. And like you say, if you leave it as a shrub, uh, for instance, the atropurpurea thunbergia, um, if you leave it as a shrub in winter, it looks like an unsprung mattress. It's just, it's all over the shop. If you coppice them, you get the better foliage on them. Uh, 
but in winter the younger canes are a coppery colour. So you get it's not a bright colour like some of the red stem dogwoods, but it is a nice structural thing. You've got all these big long shoots that are sort of a light coppery colour and then these big needles off them as well. Um, so the yeah. This is the three C R Garden Show. If you and I'm Virginia Hayward. If you would like to ring us, you can ring us on nine four one nine O one double five or the outside line nine four one nine eight three double seven. And you can send us a text on O four double eight eight oh nine eight double five. So the to ring us nine four one nine O one double five to text us O four double eight eight oh nine Eight double five. Yeah, get in touch, everyone. We'd love to hear from you. Yeah, ask us a question. Yeah. Now, somebody who has brought me a plant. What have you got, Greg? Um, well, the first one I'll talk about is an asarum, and I bought it in because I want Stephen to identify it. I, I would have bought it off him many years ago, but I can't remember what the name of it yeah. is. All right. <laughs> well, it's an easy one to name. Uh, it's um, asarum um, uh, maxima. Maxima. So, so big. So, so the. The, I remember you mentioning years ago, I think probably when I bought it, is that it's probably slug pollinated. Yeah, the, the, the flowers, flowers are hidden ground under level, and they're the most. Uh, in in America, they call it the panda plant because it's got black and white flowers. Yeah, so, so it's a North American no, species. No, it's not or actually it's one of the Asian uh, Maxima, ones. as far as I know, is an Asian one. Okay, um, they do have some North American species in the genus, mm. um, uh, and I have had a few of them over the years. Although I've lost some of my asarums, unfortunately, mm. in recent years due to lack of uh, attention, probably. Um, but that one makes a nice clump. It's evergreen. Its foliage is big. Uh, it has a slightly marbly look to it. The the, the foliage lovely. is something between. An arum leaf yeah. and a cyclamen leaf with a slight yeah. variegation on it. It's so, so it's about it's more it's more of a cyclamen size, yeah. but it's a bit more aroid shaped. So it's yeah. got a, a cute tip and some sort of rounded lobes on the back. Um, yeah, it gets to maybe three or four, four inches high the foliage yeah, and slowly not, creeps not out from, and from yeah, the centre. Yeah, it's a sort of a slowly creeping clump of rhizomes. Yeah. And the black and white sort of flowers tend to sit under the foliage, so yep. you've got to go hunting for them. Yeah, uh, and this is, is the first one the that's chart. opened. I, I, I thought I'd check it because I, I couldn't really find much, so I've gone hunting around the garden. I thought, mm. oh, I'll just check and see mm. if there's any flowers on that. And one had opened, but they look like um, the flowers as they're opening look like the sandworms out of June, the movie mm. June, <laughs> the big sandworms. Um, and then they open up, and as you say, it's it's like a, a burgundy. Well, it, it's almost black, isn't it? It's yeah. probably one of the blackest uh, natural-looking flowers yeah. I've it ever is. seen. It's a, it's a remarkable flower. Yeah. Um, and then little it's white not for lobes the people in the who like pretty flowers. No, in no. Their garden. Although it is like pretty in, in, its, in own, its own way. In yes. its own way. <laughs> yeah, but it's it's not a striking flower. You don't see them very easily because they hide under the foliage. But I find that's part of the fun of it because you lift the foliage aside go and you get that excitement yeah. of, of yeah. finding a flower. Um, so, and, and another one that I've had probably better success with is the is the wild ginger one, which is, mm. what's the species of that one? Uh, uh, it's probably cordatum corda- or corlessens. Yeah, yeah. I get the two confused. I think, no, I think it's cordatum. cordatum. Yeah. And it gets long lobes to the flowers yep. on it. And it's, you it's can more... get it in a greeny white or you can get it in a sort of a coppery brown. I've got a variegated leaf form mm. that I got uh, up at Forest Glade uh, that I've planted uh, up at Forest Glade. I think I got it from Antique Perennials. Yeah. Um, but the thing about that is when you crush the leaves, you've got this – and I remember weeding it at your nursery too. Oh, yeah. <laughs> As a teenager yeah. and you'd be weeding and this gingery – Yeah, it's a really strong gingery it's a, smell. It's a really unusual smell too. It's not – Beautiful. It's not a great smell, but it's not 
terrible either. You yeah, always like it when like you it. when you smell it, yeah, even though yeah. it's not. Uh, yeah, I think I'm addicted to it. Yes, um, yeah. And I think the asarums are a great group of plants. I'm very fond of them. Yeah. But they're subtle. They're woodlandy plants. They like shade. They like cool. Um, some of them are reasonably drought tolerant. Others need a reasonable amount of moisture to keep them ticking over reasonably well. well. This but, one. It never gets any attention, mm. and it's growing underneath a Fatinia hedge that's been let go, so it's pretty dry. Yeah, um, and it gets no attention. And then, as I say, occasionally I'll go, "Oh, that's right, that's there." Yeah. <laughs> I yeah. do think th- um, things that grow in dry shade are important for us to note because mm. we do have, if if we have shade. Yep. It will tend to be dry, yeah. particularly yeah, The only in time summertime. we have damp shade is if it's against a south wall or something like that. But most of our shade tends to be because of trees. Mm. Trees dry out the ground. So dry shade is something that uh, most gardeners live with. And the mm. older their garden gets, the more they end up with. Mm. So, yes, we do need to have plants that will flourish in it. Yes, it's important. Mm. And uh, the other, we had a call last week about plectranthus, mm. speaking of dry shade. Yeah. But we also must remember that plectranthus are an Australian or South African plant and they suffer from the cold but they will come back. Mm. Oh, mm. Most of them will. Mm. Uh, I think Mount Macedon is pushing them to their extreme sometimes so there's been the occasional plectranthus I've tried up there that has carked it. Um, so particularly some of the South African ones, they didn't do terribly well for me and I struggled with them and they eventually faded out. I've uh, always thought Zuluensis is the best one so mm. that doesn't work for you. No. no. Mm. I've got one growing at a garden in Woodend that if I don't whippersnip it, that's how I prune it, I just get the whippersnipper out and go and cut into it. If I don't do that, it would have taken over this whole courtyard. And that's um, Woodend's yeah, gets pretty it's cold, even colder so, probably yeah. than where I am. Uh, I might add, though, as far as I know, all the plectranthuses have been included into coleus as a genus change. Don't you <laughs> look at the look. I, I wish I could show that look that Virginia just gave uh, me uh, yeah, yeah. over radio. <laughs> but, oh, they've yes. got to work it out. It's... It, it, yeah, they should just uh, sequence everything, mm. like leave everything as it is, sequence everything, and then go, all right, these are the changes, and just change everything. Yeah, and, well, I was talking it, to somebody else the other day, and they said the thing that annoys them so much is that they'll often change something, and then five minutes later they'll change, change it again it back. or change it back. Yeah, yeah. And they reckon once they've made a change of name, they should have a moratorium on it, and it shouldn't be touched for 10 for years. For 10 years, yeah. And then they can go back and change it again if they feel the need. Yeah. But uh, that happened with the um, May apples, um, the potophyllums. Yep. Um, they decided to cut the Asian ones away from the North American ones as two different genera. So the American ones kept potophyllum, the Asian ones became disosmas. And only quite recently I went in to do some checking on something and they've all been lumped back. Uh, and there's another genus called Diphilia, um, which sort of looks vaguely like them and is obviously mm. related. Well, they've dumped that into potophyllum. Yeah, yeah. So it may well have been that because they that was kept as a separate genus, then the others had to be split because that's the way they so looked was, at yeah. it. But I think we, clumping's better than splitting too. Uh, look, I tend to agree easier. with you. Um, <laughs> yes, if you've got fewer genera that you're dealing with. Yeah, uh, and nature doesn't like to be putting in pigeonholes, so why make so many? <laughs> oh, yeah. And, and I do worry about uh, one species genera that are in one genera families and things because it doesn't give you any sense of connection where the yeah, plant yep. belongs with other plants either. Yep. So, yeah, it's just one of those things. And uh, it annoys gardeners no end, does it not, Virginia, when people <laughs> change the names all the time? The, the it other... takes me so long. And I've, I'm very dependent on using the Latin names because mm. I spent all that time living in England and I – have got very close friends there and they're horticulturists and we talk a lot. Mm. And if we use the 
the casual names, it doesn't work because no. they've called things something completely different to what the we thing, have. The thing is, though... I oh, get sorry. on top of it and they change it. Yeah. Mm. The thing is, though, is that if the old name that you knew, it's still correct. It's just that... So it's nothing yes. to... If, you've, if you know the old name, mm-hmm. you can still go onto Google and find, find out it. that it's got a new name. Yeah. And all the information that's tied to that old name is still tied to the old name. So old names aren't terrible to remember because mm. uh, we've got Google. <laughs> yes, yes, you can always check these things up, and I do on a regular basis. Yeah. If I'm going to get labels printed, it, it's I want to when know you're what writing labels. If you've got a nursery and you're writing labels or you're writing a book, then yes. you need to get the name right. If you're a home gardener, if you know the old name, that's fine. It's yeah, just, this you is know, true. Yeah. I don't know why that made me think of John from Sunshine, but John rang in last week about his plum. And during the week, I saw Graham Morrison, so I asked him. Now, John has this plum and he doesn't know what it is, and it fruits much later into autumn than others. And so I asked Graham, and he said the latest fruiting one is ruby blood, and the second latest fruiting one is elephant heart, which is bigger than ruby. And they both, they're both blood plums and they fruit in late February. So I just thought I'd mention that to you, John, from Sunshine, because it might, it probably isn't useful, but it might be. We can Mm. always hope. Yeah. And the other thing is that Graham has just written a memoir called The Stairway to Me. And he's given me a copy. I haven't read it yet because I've only had it for two days. But, what, and you haven't read it yet? <laughs> I know. <laughs> Dreadful, Virginia. I know. Very, very poor on my poor form on my part. But I did think that I would mention it, and I've put it up on our Facebook page so ah, people right. can see it. And if anybody is interested in contacting Graham about his memoir, Stairway to Me, and I have had a look through and I think I'm going to really enjoy it, email him on graylee at hotmail.com. That is G-R-A-L-E-E at hotmail.com. And so people could source a copy if they want to. Source a copy and talk to them if they want to that way because unfortunately today there are so many books that are self-published. It's so hard to get a book published. And there is one other thing I thought I'd remind people about we have mentioned before Open Gardens Victoria is running a competition, Recycling in Your Garden. It's being judged by Stephen Wells, who is another one of our visitors, and it's open only to home gardeners. Stephen's looking for diverse, creative, innovative, fun ways of using recycled stuff in your garden. It can be stuff you've made from recycled building materials, everyday items. One of the things I saw at... um, in England at one of the plant shows, it was they were using colanders for mm. putting succulents in, which I thought was such a good idea. I've got some very manky old colanders. I'm going to immediately start using because <laughs> because the, the drainage is going to be perfect in yep. a colander. Mm. Yeah, it will be. It's how you use these things sometimes too. I mean, some people can turn an old wheelbarrow into an old wheelbarrow mm. and that's it. Um, other people will turn it into something quite divine. innovative and divine. I remember when I was in England years ago, we decided to drive down to Derek Jarman's garden at Dungeness. I love that garden. Yeah, and it's the most amazing place. I mean, it's on the big chunky white shingle with the nuclear power plant behind. It's a, a timber cottage all painted black um, and it's got a few plants growing in it that are things that will grow in those sort of conditions, things like sea kale and all that sort of stuff are growing there. And 
most of the garden is made up of found objects. So it's driftwood and rusty things, and it was stunning. It's, and it's, I don't know whether you noticed, and I don't know whether it's still there, but a neighbour a few doors down, seeing all these people coming up looking around Derek Jarman's place, decided to try and do the same thing, and he created a junkyard. <laughs> or she. I'm, I, I shouldn't uh, assume, but I've yeah. just got a sense it's a bloke. Um, and they thought they could do the same thing, and so they collected a whole pile of stuff, and it looks like like somebody needs to tidy up. <laughs> well, De- Derek Jarman was a filmmaker for people who don't know him, and I think you'll definitely be able to look that up on on. Um, what, what, what? Yeah, mm. and it's still maintained as a beautiful garden, and it's interesting because it has led to that whole area, that whole little space underneath the nuclear power station, yeah. being controlled. You're not allowed to build something big and. Well, except apparently for a nuclear power station. Well, <laughs> which is rather large. Yeah, it is rather large, but it is really interesting. And it's, uh, when I went there, it's uh, you could just sort of mm. wander around. There was, you know, there's no fencing. The, no. the 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 boundaries seem to be just where you stopped planting, really, or gardening. Um, and I don't know whether it's still the same, but as long as you don't sort of go perving in windows and stuff, you can just sort of walk in. And um, and I've got some lovely pictures of it. It's, it's a really charming space. I haven't been there for a while, I suppose, maybe 10 years. But it, I mean, Derek, of course, was died quite early from AIDS, mm. but it has been maintained. It has mm. been kept mm. there. And it is, a, it is a really exciting garden because it's incredibly in, inhospitable. I mean, the nuclear power station is is appropriate for the inhospitality. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it sort of all works somehow. Yeah, it's just really, really tough. I couldn't garden there. I yeah. would give up. No, it'd uh, drive me insane. I mean, it's lovely visiting. I, I don't think I could garden there though because your palette of plants is so limited, um, and, and it's really all about just trying to create a setting more than grow plants. Yeah, really. yeah. So the plants are sort of secondary. Well, I've got a great question for us. Uh oh. Yes. Morning team, can one plant a Weldenia candida tuber upside down from George? I've never grown Weldenia. No, I don't know. Um, <laughs> I would imagine you could plant it up da- upside down um, and it might not be a good thing to do is what I'm trying to lead towards. I mean, it's a little... Alpine perennially thing uh, with beautiful white flowers on it. It's charming. It's a lovely little plant, but I've never grown it. And it's, it's, a, it's something of a challenge to grow. Uh, I know my friend John Flens has got a pot of it and he does very well with it and every so often throws up a picture on his Facebook page yeah, when his Maldini is in flower. And knowing that he grows it, if George is on Facebook, uh, John's quite open to answering questions. He loves his plants. Yeah. Um, so if you can find John Flens on Facebook. F-L-E-N-S. Yep. I'm not sure he he works under that name though on his Facebook. I think page. yeah he does. Yeah, does he's, he? he's yeah. and he's very open. Mm. Uh, he'll post something and there's like a hundred comments on it. Yeah, <laughs> it's really. Uh, and his pictures are always good. Yeah. and he nearly always puts a thimble or something in his photograph so that you can yeah. get a sense it's of into scale. The and he can grow those sorts of plants. He can like bulbs and alpines. And if the he's question, just amazing at growing that stuff. At the yeah. If the question is because he's not sure which end is up. I would have thought it would be fairly obvious which end is up with it because it's 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 not really a bulb as much as it's more a sort of a rootstock, um, and I think it's reasonably easy to tell which way's up. But but anyhow. if if it's not mm. planted on its side, yeah, well that's what I do with most things. If I'm uncertain of which way's up, I just plant it on what looks like its side. 
plants have a really good habit of being able to write themselves. Um, and I mean, if you plant tulips upside down, they'll write themselves. Mm. They, they, they quickly sort of turn themselves the other way. Do they actually turn? Yeah. Aren't they yeah, clever? Yeah, yeah. Well, tulips are uh, when they're planted commercially in the in the fields. They don't go around and sort no. of place them like that. They whack uh, them in nets big, and they just lay them yeah. out across the ground and they're it upside down as, all over the place. You get a couple of hundred thousand bulbs in a big copper on the back. I've done this because yeah. I used to work at a bulb farm, <laughs> and uh, yeah, they just come flying out the back into nets and and the soil pushed over them. And, and of course, something like tulips and a, a lot of other bulbs too. They don't um, the bulb that you plant isn't what's storing the the starch next year either. Uh, yeah, it creates a new bulb. Yeah, so so that bulb gets shriveled up to grow the leaves and then it pr- uh, produces a new bulb, which is up the right way the second year. Yeah. yeah. So there you go. So there you go, George. Look for flens, F-L-E-N-S, or plant it sideways and none of us have grown it, I'm afraid. No. But <laughs> John, John's I got, that was useful. John's got an Instagram account too. That might even be easy to get to. Um, uh, and, and he's worth following because he grows some amazing plants and he does it so well. He's just... <laughs> he, he's pedantic about things. He, anything he's growing, he grows it extremely well and he mollycoddles it and looks after it yeah. and makes special mixes for things. He does all the things I don't have the time to do and why so many valuable and precious plants have come into my hands only to disappear again mm. in due Well, course. I've given... Uh, John, most of my fritillaria collection because mm. I'm I just don't yeah. look after it anymore, and, and it's and it's like you know, um, mm. and John's like, oh yeah, I'll, I'll look after him for you, <laughs> and uh, I, um, it's much more because I don't have to put any effort in, but I can still see the results. <laughs> yes, <laughs> red, you can visit plants, yeah. So whereabouts does he live? Uh, up in Mount Mason, yeah. Right. But uh, yeah, no, it's definitely worth following John on Instagram and and Facebook. Um, and as I say, he seems, uh, looking at the comments section on most of his posts, he seems quite happy to answer questions. So, um, yeah, he's, he's, he's uh, very, very good with his knowledge and, and quite good happy resource. to share. Yeah. Well, that's fantastic, isn't mm. it? I mean, knowledge is power, so share it. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, exactly. Mm. Well, I hope that helps to George. And um, thank you for sending us a text. If somebody else would like to text us, the line is 488 809 or ring us on 94190155. I'm Virginia Haywood and with me is Stephen Ryan and Greg Balderston. There's one other thing I thought I'd mention because mm. I got asked last week. I'm doing two walks in the Botanic Gardens in August, one in, in the afternoon on the 14th and one in the morning on the 19th. And I always like to mention to people that the Botanic Gardens in Melbourne has a walk every day. And if you have a look online, you will find the details. And then I thought there's a lot of other guides from regional um, gardens, etc., who listen. And the Botanic Gardens in Melbourne and Cranbourne are running a guides conference late in the year in autumn. In autumn, in October. I was going to say autumn would be next year. Yes, quite. <laughs> in October, from the 24th to the 29th of October, it's called Share and Inspire, Guiding for Plants, People and the Planet. So if you're a guide and you'd like to come to a guides conference, we have people from all over Australia and from New Zealand. So it tends to be a very interesting. The Melbourne Cranbourne people have put guides have put a huge effort into making an interesting conference. And Is you that can, the one I'm doing a talk at? Yes, yes you okay. are doing a right. talk at. You're doing the fungi talk. <laughs> yes, yeah. And Stephen's doing the plant trust talk. Mm. And I'm introducing both of you. And um, 
the, you'll find it at the rbg.vic.gov.au site slash volconf22. Oh, God. <laughs> yeah. But also, if you just put in Guides Conference, mm. it, um, Melbourne RBG Guides Conference, it comes up. Yeah, yeah. So, so you don't have to get it exact. So it is for guides. It is for people who – but then all sorts of people do guide people mm. around. So mm. do feel – Free to to have. Would a look. it be somewhere somebody who might want to be involved could get into this conference? I've no idea. Because if, say, for instance, sake, I suddenly retired and decided I wasn't going to run a nursery anymore, but I'd love to do guiding. Guiding. It'd be fun to go to a conference and find out a little mm. bit about it before I put my hand up. So I wonder if you could do it if you're not actually a guide, but are thinking of being one. Well, I think what you do is actually. Contact us through that and ask mm. us that question. Yeah, because I know there are some people coming who are who are guiding in unusual places. Yeah, like cemeteries, for example. Mm-hmm. So yeah, and I think it's. I'm well, looking it, it would be to a good tool guiding for that, a wouldn't cemetery, it? Because that'd be dead easy. <laughs> <laughs> but it would be a good tool for what, like what you're saying, mm. because um, uh, what better way to get someone involved with something than showing them all the exciting things that. And that I've, happens in that in that thing. So it would actually be a good, useful recruitment tool. It took me – I've been a guide for forever. It took me a long time to start going to the conference, but then I went to the Canberra one, the Sydney one and the Perth one, and every one of them I've just adored and I've learnt so much. Mm. Yeah, so fantastic. that's part mm. of what's – it is a really good learning session. Mm. It's very inspiring, I think. Actually, when you mention Perth, I'm, I'm going away this week. Are you? I'm off to Margaret River on Wednesday morning. And I'm doing some talks for the Mediterranean Garden Society over in Margaret River. And because they're flying me over Jetstar to Bustleton, I'm going to be stuck there for a week. <laughs> so so they're going to take me round, show me things. Oh, how divine. Uh, I believe we're going to a whiskey event one night. We're going out to dinner somewhere else and we're doing all sorts of things. So I'm going to have a ball for a week. Oh, Stephen, that sounds like such fun. <laughs> yes, it should be, fun. should be really good fun. So, um, yes, so they're obviously a very enthusiastic organisation uh, and it was only comparatively recently I found out that WA has got a um, Mediterranean Garden Society. So there you go. Well, it would make sense. It does make because sense. Because that southern mm. western bit, that's yeah. exactly the climate. Oh, exactly. So. So, yes, and I believe I'm going to visit a garden uh, where the guy who owns it collects Madagascan plants. Fabulous. So it should be great fun. So I'm looking forward to that. And it does raise the issue if people want to see the wildflowers in Western Australia this year is going to be a good one because they've had good winter rains. Mm. So there should be fantastic wildflowers in Western Australia. And if you don't know how to organise a tour for yourself, uh, Australians studying abroad have got one in September that I'll be leading. Uh, and we're going to be using Sabrina Hahn over in Western Australia as our local... Um, plant nerd who knows the local stuff better than I do. Uh, So she'll spend three or four days with us looking at the wildflowers, but we'll also be going to look at private gardens and what have you whilst we're over in Western Australia as well. Um, And it's in September, so if anybody's interested, I know we've still got a few spaces on the Western Australian one, um, and it could be a lot of fun. So so it's Western Australia in September, and then I'm off to New Zealand in November with a fully booked up tour. Oh, good. Uh, And next year it's Spain in May and Normandy and Brittany in June. I had lunch with someone who's going to, on Friday, who's Mm. going to Spain with you. Ah, oh, good, Mm. good. Yes, I'm looking forward to that one because it's the first time I've done the Spanish tour. So uh, apparently we're getting into some remarkable gardens when we're there. Not only the obvious sort of Moorish gardens of Spain, but a lot of modern landscapes because the local guide we're going with 
is a very famous uh, Spanish landscape designer and she's getting us into a lot of the gardens she's actually designed. Oh, that'll be fun. Yeah. Tim Entwistle was talking about the Madrid Botanic Gardens mm. on um, on 621 oh, yeah. yesterday morning. I love hearing people talk about anything botanic on mm. the radio. Yes, it's and there's not enough of it. Tim mm. luckily does does a bit on the on Saturday mornings. You do seven seven four. Yeah, but mm. that's too short. It should be longer. Well, but they do give me nearly half an hour now, so they have improved, it improved on improved last year. It has improved a lot. Yeah, yes, it, it yes. has improved a lot. We've got a call from Olive in Frankston. Good morning, Olive. Good morning, everyone. Thank you for a lovely show, which I've been listening to for years. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Um, I've got a plant, it's very similar to a gladioli, but it's white with a brown centre. And um, a lady in in our street, she moved into an old age home, and what they did, they divided the property up, and and this was growing, so I grabbed it, and I grabbed about a dozen. And they come up about three foot high, and uh, they, and the, the top sort of it, it flattens out. It's sort of like a round flower, but it's definitely white with a brown centre. Yeah, now, it's probably what used to be in a genus of its own, but is now classed as a gladioli. Oh, um, is it? And I'm trying to think what its old name was. It's gladioli... Is it one of the acidanthra? Uh, acidanthra, yeah. yes. It, it was acidanthra. It's now gladioli calianthus, I think. Yeah, Something I can't like. remember either. Yeah, um, <laughs> but uh, they call them uh, peacock gladys, um, and they are slightly scented. I don't know if you've noticed the perfume. No, I haven't. Um, but, uh, yes, they used to be called acidanthras. Um, and, can uh, we have that said slowly so we can spell it? Well, it's acid, anthras. A-C-I-D. Yeah, uh, A-N-T-H-E-R-A. E-R-A. Yeah, so A-E. acid anthra. Uh, but it is now classed as a species gladioli. Mm. But it, again, oh. using the old name might actually get you yeah. progress in Google to get to the new name now. Yeah, that's right, exactly. So, yeah, go in through acid anthra instead of trying yeah. to go through gladioli, which is a huge which, genus. Yeah, there's, there's so many in the, in yeah. the genus. And yeah. uh, that's probably what you've got. It's a, a lovely old-fashioned thing, and you don't see oh, it grown yeah. very much anymore. No. No, I used to have it. I don't think I've got it anymore. I I found it was a bit cold sensitive for where Mm. I am and it slowly faded out, so I stopped buying it. Well, you should be all right in Frankston. Yeah, in Frankston it should go well. Oh, yeah, Frankston it grows well, yes. They're they're lovely. And thank you for your wonderful show. It's a must for me every Sunday morning. Excellent, Olive. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Have a good day. Bye. Bye. And we've got another call from Marion in Northcote. Good morning. Good morning, Marion. Thanks so much for your show. I love it. Oh, good. And I was super pleased to hear you discuss the Regnans, the mountain ash, this morning. Yeah. That's one of my favourites. Guess what? I'm not going to plant that in my backyard. (laughs) (laughs) What what a wuss. (laughs) I know, I know. I just don't think it's going to be, it's just not going to be practical. But it would be somewhere nice for the koalas to visit when they come through. (laughs) Well, talking about, yeah, just quickly about that. So if if you're also a lover of the mountain ash, there's currently, um, I think it's to do with Arbor Day, we can vote for our favourite tree on the ABC poll. Yes, I saw that on um, social media the other day and I meant to mention it this morning. Thank you for bringing that up. Yeah, I'm much more interested in 3CR mm. than ABC, of course. So, you know, so if we want to visit the mountain ash, it's only about an hour's drive out, but you have to be careful not to be in a logging coop. 
So just just be watch for the signs. But you know, there's beautiful um, there's beautiful walks, and uh, it's really sensational. Just given the recent state of the environment report, that we really need to um, you know look after our atmosphere just for the future of the climate and all our gardens. It would be really great if we could consider. I know it's impossible. So, re-veg- just sorry, just quickly, re-veg- So, there's also a tradition on Arbor Day to go plant a tree. Mm-hmm. Yes, and that's great. But today, I'm not going to because I've just been really discouraged at the level of of logging and the way that logging's happening in the mountain ash forests. And we know that revegetation is a, it's expensive and it just doesn't seem to work. So, for me, um, the one is to maybe. I have, to, I have to you, say, Marianne, I completely yeah. agree with you. It's yeah. uh, this this Labor government we've had in this state has been quite remarkable in lots of ways, but they are appalling on logging, hmm. absolutely well, appalling. But let's not let's not just um, slam them. I'm not here to slam the Labor government. They have made a statement that they're going to end native forest logging. I think the problem is Vic Forest, um, their business. Um, um, so it's just, how it's treated uh, as a resource, hmm. and it's worth more than that. It's not just a resource. It's it's yeah, a, the biodiversity yeah. that these forests contain, especially the old growth forests. Yeah, and even in a small little island like uh, Mount Macedon, the, the the cool climate rainforest that's up on Mount Macedon, there's a couple of areas that are remnant old growth forest right up the top that the logging in the 1850s left. Yes. And the biodiversity in fungi in those areas is much more vast than anywhere else in the valleys where it was completely logged. Mm. There's wow. not that many eucalyptus regnans on Mount Macedon anymore because they basically cut all of them down and they only left trees on the ridgeline and the regnans don't grow on Ridges. above about 800 metres on Mount Macedon. Um, right. So they basically cut all the regnans down completely. Mm. Um, and as I say, even after, so that the, they logged in 1855 up there, even after all these years, you can still tell the difference in the areas that were logged compared to those old, little patches of remnant old growth forest. So wow. it's not 80, they don't recover in 80 years. Something mm. like a eucalyptus obliqua doesn't reach maturity until it's at least 150 um, mm. These forests don't recover quickly. They they, the they, other... they they grow well. They 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 mm. they survive these uh, catastrophic events well. Um, but the forest, as a living organism with all its biodiversity, doesn't recover in eighty years or a hundred years. It takes much mm. longer than that. And the other thing too is that previously the land was controlled and was serviced, but now we log and leave. Mm. And so you get really, 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 really thick growth with no intervention and no work to thin mm. it out and to mm. – and, and that they, also means that it doesn't survive yeah. as well. And, and – yeah, sorry. Yeah. No, you go. I, I was going to say too that, that a lot of – especially the, the cool climate rainforest areas um, have evolved to survive fire, but they're not – fire's not – they've only evolved to survive the fire. So burning yeah. in Regnan's forests mm. as a, as an idea of because we sort of made, we've given this idea that all Australian forests are the same and they all burn, mm. so we have to mm. burn them all the time, mm. and it's not the case. Cool climate rainforests don't do that. That's what fungi do in those forests is That's chew right. up all the stuff on the forest floor. Fire doesn't. Mm. They've just they can just survive that because it's a catastrophic a catastrophic event for those forests. 
And also, yes. and so also we've, we've, we've walked those forests. We know that they're full of tree ferns. Like, do you know what I mean? Like, the yeah. only thing that Vic Forest attempts to replant is the regnum, so that it goes to a monoculture if it works. Yeah. And, uh, and it doesn't work. But uh, what I'm saying is, over and above all that and the considerations, we now have this terrible damage being done to our climate. And the trees are our... They're, they're going to support it, not just in giving us a beautiful place to be for recreation, but they, they save water, they store a lot of carbon. The most carbon-dense soils are at the foot of those regnans in the um, central highlands. So there's so many reasons um, to keep it. But I'm definitely not about slamming state government. I am about, for me, I want to engage with them and just say, this is beautiful, this is great, um, let's try and keep what we have for, you know, for the future. Excellent, Marion, and thank you very much for ringing in. OK, thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. I think um, it is difficult when we see how, how much we've lost in mm. Australia. Mm. We've lost more mammals than any other continent in the world. And, and as far as forests go too, it's worse in other places as well, like, you know, there's lots of areas in Southeast Asia and mm. the Amazon that well, the Amazon is getting have no regulation. Or, mm. You know, it's mm. uh, there's at least some attempt here to regulate uh, forestry in Australia, even though it still errs on the side of uh, big Long. business and mm. greed. But uh, it's there's other areas in the world where there's no restrictions at all, and it's just uh, well, open let's cheer to... ourselves up with a with a flower. What a good idea. Yeah. All right. All right. I've uh, posted the flowers, or at least I've given Liz the images of the flowers, so I'm assuming she's posted them up onto our social media. Uh, I'll start with the one that I cut off a bush at home uh, this morning, and that's the yellow paper Daphne, uh, Edgewarthia. Now, it's not strictly a Daphne, although they're closely related. It's in its own genus, Edgewarthia. Uh, there's only a couple of species in the genus. This one is Edgewarthia chrysantha in its large flowered form, funnily enough, called Grandiflora. Uh, and it's a stiff, twiggy shrub, deciduous, gets clusters of yellow flowers in the late winter. It is slightly fragrant, uh, although not heavily so like a normal Daphne would be. Um, the flowers are yellow on the inside, but the back of the, the tubular flowers is white, so it's sort of an interesting combination. And the, and do the flowers come before the leaves? Yes, they tend to come I out before the, the leaves. So my plant in the, in the garden is in full flower at the moment, but it has no foliage on it at all. Uh, and it gets quite stiff stems, almost like a, a baby frangipani. So you've got this sort of stiff branchy plant and most of the time it tends to branch in threes so you sort of start off with a single trunk at the bottom as a rule and then that will branch in threes and each of those will branch in threes so you get this quite formalized form out of a well-grown plant and uh, so it tends to be a little bit trunky underneath so you've got gaps underneath it so it's a great place to put cyclamen or dwarf narcissus or snowdrops or or primroses, or any sort of small growing thing that would flower at the same time, and it allows light into those plants because it's it's dormant when it's in flower. Uh, the only thing I warn people about with Edgeworth is they have very strong bark, and in fact, in parts of Nepal and China, the bark was used to make paper. 
Um, and so they call it a, a Japanese paper Daphne for that reason. And the reason I mention it is because if you try and pick a stem without cutting it with a pair of sharp secateurs, you're likely to rip the bark all the way to the ground. Yeah. So if somebody comes, if, if I see anybody go towards my bush with their hand out, um, uh, they'll generally get, you know, sort of a... Uh, uh, spade across the back of the hand or whatever I've got <laughs> in my hand at the time because you can actually virtually destroy a plant of it by just trying to break a sprig off. Yeah. So you need a pair of sharp secateurs if you're going to pick it. Uh, it does last quite well as a cut flower, so it's there's worth a, picking. There's an orange one Yeah, there's as one well? called Red Dragon, which is an orangey-coloured one. Mm. Um, uh, there's also the classic form of this, which has a slightly smaller flower and less uh, heavy stems and the other species that's in Australia is one called uh, Edgeworthia gardneri um, and it tends to be semi-evergreen or semi-deciduous whether you're a depends on whether you're a pessimist or an optimist half full half, uh, yeah, half, full, half empty <laughs> um, and it has a pale yellow flower but it can grow to a shrub three or four metres so it can grow into a huge big plant Edgeworthia gardneri and in fact I had a big one growing in the nursery garden which was fantastic until it got so big it got a little bit leany, and then we had a storm and the whole thing got pulled out of the ground. Right. Uh, so I've got to start another one at some stage if I can find a space to squeeze one in. Um, but I think the Edgeworthy is a really v- valuable shrubs. So, And you could hold the National Collection having four plants, basically, because <laughs> as far as I know, there's only four clones and plants available in Australia. So and you then go. you could register with plant trucks. Exactly. Mm. So you could have the Edgeworthia collection in a very small garden in Melbourne somewhere quite, quite <laughs> easily. So, yeah, great plants, the yellow paper Daphnes. Can I just put a message out to Erin, who listens to the podcast rather than the show, she sent us uh, quite a lot of questions and photos uh, in in our um, email, mm-hmm. and we will come back to that next week. We'll have answers for you next week. Uh, AB will be in charge next week, and she will address those questions for you. Fantastic. Erin. All right. Uh, have we got anybody coming in at the moment? No. no oh, well, no. I've got a couple more plants, so we might as well continue. Um, some of the little hoop petticoat daffodils are in flower now. They're a great group of, of small bulbs. Uh, you can have them flowering from sort of March right through to around about October, November, depending on, you know, the diversity of varieties that you plant. And one of Australia's great breeders of dwarf daffodils is a guy in Tasmania, uh, Rod Barwick, and he runs a nursery called Glenbrook Bulbs. And have you ever met Rod? No. Oh, I have. Uh, he is the most eccentric character. He's very funny. Uh, and he's been breeding some amazing stuff. Uh, he gives them pretty naff names, most of his stuff. But <laughs> this is one of his uh, hoop petticoat daffodils that he bred that he calls Ben Blur. And a lot, of the, a lot of these names are apparently shortenings. He had a whole series of miniature narcissists that he named after famous fictional detectives, but he wasn't sure whether the names were in some way copyrighted or whatever. So what he did was he took the, the last part of the first word and the first part of the last word and put them together. So there's one called Sproit, which is Hercule Poirot. Uh, there's another one called Colmes, which is Sherlock Holmes. Uh, and so he had this whole series of them where he, and the names sound stupid. They mean nothing unless you understand what he was trying to do. So his detective series have all these weird names on them. It's to be uh, a detective to so figure yeah, out what figure they out what they, Well, I didn't know. And I, I actually asked him, I said, what are these 
bizarre names you're giving these things. So he actually explained it to me, uh, and it sort of makes some sense. But uh, they, they're not romantic and pretty names, so I'm not quite sure what Ben Blur is. I'm not sure whether that's part of his... Uh, I thought it was a pun on Ben-Hur or something. Well, yeah, yeah you, you wonder, don't you? Um, so maybe it's another one of the famous fictional detectives I've never heard of, and I haven't been able to work out how the words uh, connect. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but it might be something else. And... Um, uh, this particular one, Ben Blur, has a really nice, clear, really citrus yellow flower. Uh, it's got good solid uh, stems. It doesn't tend to flop and fall about. Flowers for ages. got some nice, big, open, almost flat uh, corolla. Uh, and it's a good multiplier. So it's definitely, because there's a lot of hoop petticoats out there that are being sold around the traps, that are shy flowering, you can end up with 50,000 bulbs of it in your garden and three flowers. Um, so you need to look out for good clones. And most of um, Rod Barwick's stuff is really good. Um, yeah, and they're good pot plants. They're great really in good pots. in pots too, aren't yeah, they? The, yeah, the they last for ages yeah. in pots. They don't mind being a bit root-bound. And even some of the ones that don't flower so well in the ground, often yeah. when they're squeezed and left into a pot, they seem to flower a little bit better yeah. sometimes too if they're yeah. crowded in but a... But yeah, I've, I've chucked away a lot of different narcissus bulbicodium mm. types over the years because... You've got enough green leaves. Yeah, and, yeah. yeah, and, you know, you don't grow these things for their leaves. Uh, so if they're not going to flower well, then I'd rather move on. So Ben Blur's a really pretty little one, flowering now, so it's sort of a midwinter flowering one, and it's a nice, clear, cheery yellow. And I think Yellow it's in the garden at this time of year mm. just lifts you. It's fabulous. Yeah. It's fa- yeah. And those those all those miniature daffodils are gorgeous. Yeah, mm. well, my cycleminous ones, the little uh, oh. cyclamen-like... No, Narcissus uh, are all coming out at the moment, and I've now got them growing in between the cracks in some paving. Oh, how divine! Yeah, well, it's, it's funny because I, I would have bought those off you originally yeah. too as a teenager, yeah. and had the one pot, maybe ten flowers for years and years and years, and then I saw a seed pot on it one year, and I thought I should give that a go, yeah. and now I've got hundreds. Of yeah, years. <laughs> yeah, and it's a great little plant, but it doesn't multiply by the bulb well. No, but if you, I generally go around and try and hand pollinate all mine yeah, each yeah. year if I remember. Uh, so I get in there with a matchstick or something and rattle it around in all the flower heads. Um, and I often get a good seed set. Yep. Uh, and they take two to three years to start flowering from seed. So it's not outrageous. Uh, no, that's good for no. a bulb. Yeah, mm. for a bulb. I think that's pretty good going. Uh, I've often flowered them in their second year. Yep. Um, and Narcissus cyclaminius is gorgeous with its little donkey ear-like petals that flare straight back. It sort of looks a bit like a Christmas cracker. Mm. Um, and I think it's a charming little Narcissus. And it's a great woodlandy plant because it needs a little bit of summer moisture in the ground. It doesn't like to dry right out like some of the other Narcissus. And that's why you don't see it sold as a dormant bulb. Yeah. You know, you can't buy a packet of them no. somewhere. Um, and there's some nice um, cultivars or, or oh, some wonderful things hybrids of, and of things cyclamineous of, of cyclamineous too. too. Yeah. But I don't think any of them have quite the same no. quaint charm as no, the wild a, species. Yeah. I just love. I'm them. like that with most bulbs, actually. Yeah, well, I, I like the species too, Greg. Yeah. Although, you know, I have to say, yeah, yeah, some no, of these that, some of them are things, definitely. Uh, it's like that we were talking about the gladdies before. Well, the gladiola, most is of the, a the classic species gladdies are just stunning yeah. things. Mm. But there's but, yeah, there's the classical uh, Dame Edna average ones. Uh, no thanks. Yeah, yeah. But, but but there's the uh, Colvillii hybrids. Yeah. Some of those that um, the Colvillii ruba. Gladiolus, it's silver on the outside. It looks like a white, silvery flower when it's before it opens, and then when it opens yeah. up, it's it's beautiful, deep raspberry red. Yeah, <laughs> and it's you just yeah, um, oh, there's some gorgeous yeah, some, things. Yeah, yeah. So, so there's some hybrids that certainly uh, don't fit into the rule, but yeah, a lot of and, the hybrids are. And just... I have found that 
planting bulbs that are dormant in summer. Mm. It was something that I, I just started doing because of the drought. Mm. Mm. I moved into Seville during the drought and, you know, having spent all those years in London, it took me quite a long time to adjust to what this meant. Mm. And, of course, I'm, I don't have any town water. Yeah. And so I started planting dormant bulbs that are dormant in summer. Summer dormant, yeah. Because... Yeah. I didn't have to look after them. No, exactly. Mm. It was wonderful. Yep. Yes, yes. Yep. All right, well, has nobody come through no, yet but on let, the phone line? Let me just give out the numbers again. Yep. 94190155 or the text line 0488809855 and you get me, Virginia Hayward, Greg Boulderston and Stephen Ryan. And we have had some texts in to say, good on you, Marion. <laughs> Well, and she's right. So, so that's yeah. nice. Yeah, dear. So have you got another oh, flower? Let, let Stephen do his ones, I think. Okay. Because, uh, yeah. He, Liz has got them up online. I yeah, exactly. and that too. No, no, pictures. not yet. I've just taken a couple of photos, but we'll get through yeah. Stephen's ones right. first, I think. Uh, another plant that I have a great soft spot for are the plants that have up until recently been known as Mahonias, uh, but are now being dumped into the genus Berberus, uh, uh-huh. just to confuse everybody. And this particular one was getting around the trade for years as uh, Mahonia Wagneri variety Moseri, uh, which is a hell of a mouthful, and it was considered to be a hybrid of aquifolium, the common Oregon grape variety, and something else. They've now decided it probably is just a form of aquifolium. So if you're going to give it a name at all now, it's probably Berberus aquifolium moseri. Um, and it's a dwarf suckering shrub. It'll get up to nearly a metre high, um, uh, and it suckers out, so you could end up with a, a clump of it much bigger than it is, um, or much wider than it is tall. Uh, it flowers in the late winter with spikes of yellow flowers, like many of the Mahonias do, uh, and when the cold hits its foliage in the winter, uh, it gets the most fabulous burgundy colours on it in the winter. The foliage will go back to green, or basically green, in the summer, and when the new growth comes in the spring, it's bright orange. Oh, how fantastic! Divine. And that sounds so wonderful. Moserai, I think, is just a fantastic. Plant. How big does it get? Oh, a meter and a bit. I always, um, I always think the Mahonias are like if a holly was a palm tree. If a holly yeah. was trying to be a palm tree, you get a Mahonia. Yes, yeah, it's <laughs> it's the weirdest of things, and I do feel very sorry for Mister Man if he's lost his genus, which is a bit sad. <laughs> um, but. Um, yeah, I think they're, they're great plants. They'll grow in shade, although the ones that colour in their leaves in the winter tend to need some open area so that the frost can really hit them and where they can get the cold on them. So things like this Moseri one, I would definitely plant out where it got a bit of sun and the frost on it if you can. Uh, but it will still get bright orange new growth. It'll still get its bright yellow flowers, but it would be green during the winter. And how much can it take dryness? Once established, they're surprisingly tough. They won't grow as fast if they're in really dry conditions uh, but if you can keep it well watered for the first summer or two um, I think you'll find it's almost indestructible after that. Mm. Uh, there, was, there was one at the a garden I grew up in um, which has recently been levelled unfortunately that was planted in the 18, late 1860s, early 1870s and there's, there was a Mahonia, the big form of this yeah. one uh, planted underneath a 40-foot tall rhododendron, yeah. and that flowered every year and was about – the shoots on that would have been nearly 12 feet tall, I think, yeah. uh, on that. And that it flowered every year underneath, you know, a massive old rhododendron, no water, no nothing, yeah. no I, sunlight. I would grow this in the, <laughs> under the canopy of a eucalypt uh, and once established, ignore it. That that's, makes it a 
quite yeah. valuable. And mm. most I, of the Mahonias are like that. There's exceptions, but most of them will tolerate quite dry shade. I'm only just coming to like them. I There was so much local government planting in London yeah. mm. in, uh, that I just... Hiding public lavatories. Yes. So, so they're North American most, uh, most of the... The aquifolium is a North American one, yep. uh, but some of the bigger-leafed, more spectacular ones tend to be Asian. Okay. Um, but they go right down into Mexico. Yep. Uh, they've got quite a big, diverse range of habitats. Nearly all of them are yellow-flowered. Nearly all of them are autumn, winter, into early spring-oriented flower-wise. But even in, even there, there's exceptions. I imported one years ago called Gracilipes, which has grey under the leaves and it's pink-flowered in the summer. Mm. We are now... Everyone's had their cup of tea oh, and so, they're prepared yes, so to talk to us. Yes. The board's lit up. Yeah, the board is lit up. First, we will go to Fermi, who wants to talk to us about Narcissus. Oh. Fermi seems to have disappeared. Don't know what happened there, Fermi. Maybe you could ring back. And now we will go to Pam in Kyneton. Hi, Pam. Hello. Hello, everybody. Good morning. Can you come a bit closer to your phone, Yeah, you darling? sound like you're talking in the bottom of your toilet, Pam. Do I? Ah, that's, uh, that's a bit better. better. <laughs> you're not on... Are you on mic, Pam? Um, yes, I'll turn it off. Please yeah, take but, off yeah, the... Yeah, I think that's probably where mic the problem is. Mic never works with radio up for some reason. Are you there now? Yeah, oh, that's much, much better, better, Pam. Does that sound better? Yes. <laughs> Okay. Um, Stephen, what I was wanting to know, I've got the big poplar trees down the bottom of my property mm-hmm. and I was thinking of running something up them and I would love to run something like Albertine, mm-hmm. the rose Albertine, yeah. but I think the possums would love that. Can you suggest something else? So you want a climber to grow up through your poplar trees in cold old Kyneton? Yeah. Clematis. Down on the freezing cold mm. river. Yeah. Clematis. <laughs> yeah, some of the clematis might work, particularly the Montanas and some of the other species. Napalensis too, so you've got something Napalensis. in winter. Yeah, Napalensis would work. Uh, so what was that one? So, so Clematis Montana, yes, yeah, I know and that. Clematis and Clematis Napalensis. Montana Elizabeth is particularly yes, wonderful. Yes, I know Elizabeth. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, yes. So I would go down that path. Uh, Clematis Napalensis, the little winter flowering Which one. is, mine's flowering at the moment, yeah. and then it gets a seed, like a lot of the Clematis do, gets a beautiful little fluffy truffula seed tree on seed heads on yeah. them. Yeah. So you could go down that path. How moist is it down in amongst the poplars? Pretty wet. They are big poplars, and I'm down near the river, so it's down the bottom of the hill. All right, I'd be but, even trying some of the climbing hydrangeas. Oh, no, Stephen, they wouldn't survive the frost. Yes, they will. Mm. No, they wouldn't. I'm sorry, not on my property. Pam, they grow 40 feet up in the air. The frost doesn't go up there. Yes, but I've got to get them there. Yeah, they, they would grow there. I, I, If you plant any of the deciduous climbing hydrangeas, I'd almost guarantee them as long as they don't get too dry in the summer. And they would come from colder climes. They do. They come from Japan as well, yeah. and, you know, places like that. I would definitely try the climbing hydrangeas. Um, if you come and see me at the nursery, I might even give you a baby one so it's not going to cost you anything and you can try it. <laughs> Um, I feel fairly confident they'd grow. And the thing about them I like is that they're self-clinging, so you don't have to have any infrastructure to get them up mm. into the tree. Once they 
grab hold, they just keep going up. And then once they're up, you can put other climbers onto them. Yeah, and then they can run Well, you can there. still put a Clematis snapolensis because that grows over winter and the Heidi's... Yeah, grow uh, over the summer. Over the summer. So I, I would be really shocked if it wouldn't grow there other than the fact if it got too dry in the summer is what I would be worrying about, not the cold in the winter for the hydrangeas. No, it won't get dry. All right, well, then I, I think you've got the perfect opportunity to try growing the climbing hydrangeas because they look fantastic growing up trees. But in most parts of um, mainland Australia, when you try to do that, it's too dry mm. under the tree. Mm. Uh, I yeah. know when I was in Oregon years ago, I went to a famous nursery slash display garden there and they had the most amazing climbing hydrangeas growing up through um, Douglas firs and things. And here that it would just be too dry. Yeah. <laughs> but because, you know, that part of the world has a very damp, wet climate, the climbing hydrangeas were stunning. And I reckon that up around that Pugin Sound area is every bit as cold as Kyneton. There's some thoughts for you, Pam. Do you have clematis in the nursery at the, the moment? At the moment, I haven't got anything much I can offer. I've got some napolenses coming along, but they're too small uh, to sell yet. Uh, there might be one or two Montanas around, but I'm not sure. Uh, I'd have to have a look. But uh, I'm fairly light on, particularly for the bigger, more robust growing clematis at the moment. If you have yeah. a look at Tessilar's catalogue online, they have got some clematis on sale at the moment. And also at the Bolabek Rare Plant Fair yeah. The Clematis Nursery. Yeah, we normally have the Clematis Nursery yeah. coming. I'm not sure whether they're so going to be wonderful. there this year or not, but mm. yeah, they would certainly be worth coming to see. Yeah, that's all right. I can have a look around. I know a few other places. Good. All right, then. I'll take your advice and we'll see how we go. All right. Fantastic. I'll let you know in a year. <laughs> <laughs> fantastic. Thank you. Okay. Bye, Pam. And we've, we've got Fermi back on line 10. Hello, Fermi. Hi, how are you? Oh, good. We've got you. <laughs> yes, I, I wanted to let Stephen um, know that uh, Ben Blur is a... Um, hold on a minute. There's some, some echo. Here. Now, Fermi, are you on speaker? Uh, I am, yes. Yeah, Please well, you should never be off. on speakerphone when you're talking to the radio. No, the radio... I haven't got the radio on. No, no, I mean, but are you speaker... on speaker on your phone? Mm. Yeah, yeah, well, it doesn't work for radio. Oh, hold on a minute. Yeah. And I, w- I have to say to everybody who's listening, if you ring in, okay. please do not be on speaker. Okay, can you hear me now? Much, much better. better. Yeah, thank you, Fermi. Okay. Um, the, um, the Narcissus um, Ben Blur is part of the little detective series. Oh, is it? So which detective is it? I don't know. Oh, Fermi, uh, you're no help. <laughs> it's it's a TV detective, though. Oh. So it was um, just like, I mean, the the nasty thing is that he, he named Kojak just Kojak. <laughs> Did he? I didn't is there an Inspector Gadget one? <laughs> he has one called Kojak. Yeah. But um, this other TV detective, it's a combination of two names. Yeah. It's, the, it's a detective pair, okay? Oh, so it's so not the, the, one detective is named this one no, after. It's two different no, ones. And, but it's um, but I it wasn't a TV series I knew, so I never really it retained it in my memory. Oh, somebody will I possibly remember, be able to work it out. It's yeah. it's a bit of a yeah. I think if, if you go to Dafseek, it'll probably explain uh, the name. But um, I know that I um, I asked somebody once. I think somebody gave it to me once, and they said, "Oh, it's named because it's after." Two detectives. Um, who, it was a TV show that I'd never watched or anything, so 
uh, it, I just never retained it. But uh, yeah, no, that's a, but it is one. They are some of the the best um, the best of the new hybrid uh, petticoats were the um, the Glenbrook ones. But they start. He hasn't released anything new for a long time. Yeah, he may have and stopped breeding a bit. I guess he's not. He's probably no spring chicken now, um, Rod. I, I hope. I hope he's still breathing. Yeah. Well, I haven't heard anything about him for a while, so maybe he, he isn't. He I don't know. I think uh, COVID and a whole lot of other things uh, put paid to his catalogue this year, but mm. um, uh, I think we're all crossing our fingers that he'll be back in the game next uh, for the next season. Uh, but I was going to say that there are now um, uh, a couple of other breathers in Canberra who are giving him a run for the, his money because yeah. um, there's Lawrence Trevanian and the um, uh, Bulbs people, and uh, their hybrids are really quite good as well. Uh, Trevanian's um, uh, got a great range of um, uh, hoop petticoats that are uh, like uh, like. Uh, Rod's uh, good multipliers and good flowers in the garden, good. and being bred in Canberra, they um, take the quite cold. Good for us. Mm. They take the cold quite well. The only thing they don't put up with is earth mites, which uh, we our garden is infested with. So, oh. yeah, so that that's a bit of a problem because the, the really early flowering ones now uh, get affected by red earth mite. Oh. Oh, I haven't had that problem mind. yet, so don't bring it over oh, to me. Oh, I'll bring you a, bring some next <laughs> no, time. Yeah. No, thank you, Fermi. <laughs> <laughs> no, they're, they're a pest of pastures, and, of course, we're surrounded by grass. Ah, yes. So, uh, yeah. And oh, no, I'm not, uh, so that's probably a good thing. That's probably a good thing, yeah. But um, Ray Mills uh, gave me the clue. I said, how do you put, protect them from um, earth mite? And he said, well, the, the clue is in the name. They're earth mites. So you grow them in pots off the ground. Ah. And we, that's the only way I can protect them. Right. That's, that's well, difficult. Well, thank you for that, Fermi. You, you've, you've at yeah. least put where Ben Blur is, but you haven't given us who the detectives were, so no, that's somebody well, else's issue, I guess. But, but uh, yeah, they're, they're, but they're, um, yeah, they're, they're, they're a great range of plants. I know when, when I was growing up in uh, Melbourne, I uh, used to buy the uh, little packets of... Um, Bulbacodium bulbs from um, you know the Coles um, the variety store. Yeah, and uh, yeah, all you got was leaves. They never flowered. Yeah, they were hopeless, somebody, weren't they? Yeah, but now nowadays there are a lot better. Uh, the clones are better. It's one of the things we know. But, you know it's one of the things we know with condition. our nurseries is that they take a bit more care than Coles and Bunnings. <laughs> Thanks very much for uh, that, Fermi. Okay. Bye. See you later. Bye, Fermi. Bye. And we also have Jason from Murrelbark. Good morning, Jason. Hello. Hello, Jason. Well, I will just take Jason off and hope that we can find him again. And we have a couple of texts. All right. We've got to handle those, I guess. Yes. Hi, team. I have what I think is a eucalyptus flowering gum that is in flower right now. But it's in the ro- it's the wrong tree for the location it's in. It's in a small front yard and it's well over four meters and and only a few years old. Well, I don't have the heart to remove it. Can I prune it back to a meter or so moving forward each year? 
and this is in peat from Williamstown. Well, you could cut it back, but the problem is with a lot of the flowering gums, you're not growing it for the foliage necessarily, you're growing mm. them for the flowers. And if you prune it really hard, mm. as in coppicing or pollarding it back, um, the tree will survive, the tree will come back again, but it might be years before it settles down and flowers again. So the point of the tree is then lost if it's a flowering gum. So so if, the, if it was only flowering, if it took, Two years for it to flower and you only had to coppice it every six years, it might be worth doing. Yeah. But if it's going to take 10 years to flower and you've got to cut it down every five or six years, then you'll never see flowers on it. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, so that would be the issue for me. Most eucalypts you can coppice or pollard, um, but it's about what you're growing them for. If it's for juvenile foliage, that's a different thing. You don't often see pollarded eucalypts. No. Mm. You often see coppiced. Mm. There's no reason why you couldn't pollard them, but I don't know that they'll then break into juvenile foliage at the top of where you've cut them if you've left them as well, a Well, as trunk. I said, the ones I've done at home are off the ground. They're sort of uh, four, five, six feet off the ground. Yeah, that's and, a pollard. Um, they, the leaves are healthy, but as you say, I don't think they're juvenile leaves. I think yeah. they're tra- straight back. Yeah, with I the, think with when the... they get to a certain size, I think the only way you'll get the juvenile foliage is to bring them right back almost to their lignotubers. Mm. And then they'll go juvenile again. I don't think they do it if they're pollard. Yeah, they do a little bit when they first sprout, but not for very long. Yeah. It's, it turns very quickly to mature leaves. So, yeah. Um, so, so, what advice? Well, the advice is that yes, you can cut them, but no, you're not going to have a nice flowering gum potentially. I mean, I can't promise, but likelihood is that it won't flower well uh, for several years after well, it's cut. And if you're happy with the foliage, there's no harm trying. So Absolutely. You, you coppice yeah. it and, and the, then and let it go. And if it's getting too big again and it still hasn't flowered, then, well, then you, know you can think about whether... But also, if the price of keeping it is that it doesn't flower, so it doesn't flower. I mean, you cannot have a huge eucalypt in, in a small mm. front garden. So and and it's, it's better to deal with it now than... Yeah, so <laughs> I have to say, though, if it's a flowering gum and it doesn't flower, I'd rather remove it and plant something that's a much more appropriate tree for the space uh, because all you do, you've got something that's neither fish nor fowl. You're not getting the flowers, mm. which is probably the prime thing you're growing it for. Mm. Um, uh, and, yes, you may be keeping it down, uh, but you could end up with something that's quite gawky too. It, it mm. may not have a lot of natural form so or shape to no it. No harm trying. So no, yeah. Chop it yeah. down, see what it does. So, yeah, that's, uh, but it certainly won't kill it by cutting it down. So, yeah. Now, next one. Hi there. I'm fairly new to your garden show. Hope this is the right number. Yes, it is. My question is about Grevillea Superb. Mine have been in a few years and a lot looking good. They got a bit tall, so I pruned the height a lot. I used to get a lot of flowers, but the flowers are scarce now. Do they have a limited life? They face west but are under a large Irish strawberry tree, which does shade them a bit. Well, there's a few things there. It's too shady. Uh, Most of the grevilleas like to be out in pretty well full sun. Uh, Mm -hmm. They certainly need to get direct sun on them for quite a reasonable span of the day. Um, And if it's a large Irish strawberry tree, they're, they're dense, so, mm. you know, they would be casting it's a lot of shade. It's not low light, it's snow light. <laughs> yeah, it's no light, yeah. And um, and also they've got a comparatively competitive root system. Uh, the the grevillea itself shouldn't have a particularly short span. Um, My superb got red spider mite or something similar, Yeah, well, which was very sad. I think some of these hybrids, as showy as they are, haven't got quite the same strength that some of the wild forms have. Mm. So. 
you know, some are really tough, but some aren't so tough. They're grown because they've got particularly pretty flowers, but they're not always as, as from their resistance yeah. and survival. And certainly, if I was planting a grevillea into semi shade and I wanted to keep it there, I'd be nipping it from a small plant to keep it as compact and bushy as possible. Because if you prune back really hard, you're going back to what we were talking about with coppicing. You're going to potentially get quite strong new growths come out off the plant. But it's not going to settle down and flower well. And you've got to remember we've had two La Nina years, so we haven't even had warm summers in the last two years, mm. or normal summers. Um, so a lot of these plants are used to having quite hot, dry summers. So that could also be having an impact on their flowering. Mm. So there's all those different factors that could be involved. So I suspect leave it for a little while, see if it recovers, and if it doesn't, Yep. Give it the chop. Yeah, look, sometimes t- life going, is too short. I'm getting rid of my Grevillea superb because I had three, two which are not superb and one which is, that all got this red spider mite. The other two have recovered, but it mm. hasn't. It's just mm-hmm. it, And I'm not going to pull it out till I'm actually about to light the fire because I want to burn it. Mm. Well, good idea. You'll, you'll put pay to a fair few spider mites while you're at it. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Now I've got another one. Hi, gang. Would you settle an argument for Uh-oh. me? Uh-oh. Somebody's going to not like the answer there. <laughs> <laughs> what is the difference between a bottle brush and a kunzia? I have a red bottle bu- brush, brush, which someone insists is a kunzia. Well, Thanks. kunzia Kim. baxteri, which may or may not still be kunzia baxteri, has a red bottle brush-like flower. Uh, and the main difference between some of these is whether the, pet, uh, the stamens are fused at the bottom or whether they're independent. And I can't remember how it all works because I'm not really that good with the bottle brushes and their ilk. Uh, I know that uh, I think the bottle brushes have completely non-fused stamens and I think malaleucas and kunzias have fused stamens at the bottom and sometimes it comes down to being you know the particular species if you know it's this then it is this but uh, if you're not certain it can be a little difficult to know which is which. Uh, the kunzias generally have smaller foliage than most of the true bottle brushes. Uh, that might help. Um, and next week we have AB on. So and why... she would be even better at this than me. Mm. So why don't I send this question Kim through to AB and have a listen next week. And a photo if it was possible to email us a picture or something like that of the plant, uh, then that would help AB or whomever we have in that's a particularly native expert uh, and, and to you define can, it. You can find the keys to different plants as well online mm. to Now, identify. can I also ask quickly, Stephen... What was the climbing hydrangea you were talking about? Well, I'd cl- any of the deciduous ones, I think, for Pam, because the evergreen ones might be a little cold sensitive for her up there. Uh, so hydrangea pedialaris, uh, all the schizophragmas are now hydrangeas. So mm. any of those... Moonbeams uh, are really pretty moon one. Moonbeams are really pretty ones. So that'd be hydrangea hydrangeoides moonbeam now. Um, <laughs> a hydrangea-like hydrangea. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, so any of the deciduous climbing hydrangeas, I'd even be prepared to try the evergreen ones because I still think they're... They're hardier than people give them credit for. Mm. Um, so even hydrangea semanii could be worthwhile. And Fermi's come back. It comes from Benson and Stabler from Law and Order. Oh, God, I'd never have known that. I don't know them either, Fermi. So thank you for getting back. At least I now know where it comes from, even though I'm not that interested suddenly. <laughs> <laughs> Let's go to Robert from Mitcham. Hello, Robert. Yes, good morning all. Good morning. Uh, you're, you're busy talking about Mahoney of... Uh, oh, I'm getting an echo. What's happening? Are you on speakerphone or are you just on yeah. your phone? <laughs> I'm 
on speakerphone. Well, don't be on speakerphone. That's the problem. I'll, I'll take it off. Yep. I don't know whether I can hear now. <laughs> Put day. it to your ear. <laughs> I've done that. Yeah, and tell us what it is you wanted uh, to say. You were talking about Mahonias earlier. We, we've got one of the, the big old ones out the front at the moment. It was a big massive yellow on it. And we've got a, uh, another little one that we just bought from Craig recently, uh, Mahonia Repens. Oh, yeah. But uh, we've also got uh, uh, a question about uh, another little old one that's uh, not, in, not in our possession, but uh, we could uh, get, get probably get cuttings of it. How do you propagate them? Most... A little, little stunted one with... Uh, a slightly rounded leaf. Yeah, it's probably one of the aquifolium types, and the best way to grow it is just dig up suckers. Dig up the suckers. Yeah, yeah, the most... Yeah. Uh, I mean, that's how I propagate my Moseri. I just dig up some suckers from the outside of the parent plant and pop um, them up, uh, and they, I, I get about a 95% take on them. You get the odd one that doesn't get enough roots on it to settle in, but most of them do, uh, and that's the simplest way. The The ones that become quite trunky and don't sucker are an issue because you really need proper propagating facilities to strike them from cuttings. And what about seed? Do they... Uh, some of them will produce seed, um, but um, we, I don't think we've got the right pollinators or something here because mm. I don't often find seed in the in the berries. They get they, berries, but there's no yeah, – a they, lot of berberis do that, don't yeah, they? Yeah, they, they seem to yeah. be sort of blind inside, and I don't quite know why. Uh, but certainly the smaller ones uh, are all easy to propagate from suckers. <clears throat> no chance of just taking cutting. Well, you can try, but they're not that easy to propagate from cuttings. Most of the mahonias need bottom heat and all that sort of stuff. Mm. No, that's just uh, difficult to, uh, to get a uh, sucker off this particular one, I think. Uh, there you go. All right, we can but try. Yep, exactly. Okay. Thank you again for your lovely program. That's a pleasure. Good luck with that, Robert. Bye-bye. Okay, bye. And we now have Anne from Northcote. Hello, Anne. Hello, everyone. Good morning. We had mussel soup last night, so um, I just would like to smash the the shells up and put them in the garden or the compost. And because the soup would have leached out a lot of the salt, I'm hoping that it might add some value. Do you think yeah. there's much value in the in the shells? Calcium. Mm. Yeah. Of course, yeah. yeah. So uh, whenever I have oysters, which isn't all that terribly often, but occasionally I lash out and buy a dozen oysters and we'll have those as an entree, I throw the oyster shells through the shredder. Hmm. Um, yes, Ooh. Virginia, I drop them through cleans the Cleans the shredder. blades too. Yeah, it does. It cleans the blades. <laughs> uh, does it? And I would have thought it would blunt the blades. Yeah, well, it might if you do uh, it. Calcium's you know, pretty really, soft. Really, really, really. Yeah, you don't uh, want to be putting tons basis. through there. But. Yeah, but I just, because I couldn't work out what to do with them because an oyster shell's even harder to manage than a mussel shell as far as yeah. breaking it up is concerned. But somebody ages ago, I'd said something about being as organic as I can and the only thing I was throwing away were oyster shells because if I put them in the compost or dug them into the garden, they just stayed as oyster mm. shells and you could dig them up 20 years later and they still You can make a little shells. grotto and stick the oyster shells. Oh, Greg. <laughs> yeah. 
I don't think I'm going down that path. Um, so I just throw them through the shredder and then it turns them into little chippy bits and they just go out. And it is good to have roughage through the shredder while you're doing other things because there's a lot of stuff that clogs shredders up. Yeah. And to have a few oyster shells thrown every now and again, it does actually clean the blades yeah. and makes things run through a bit better. Yeah. I usually use gum t- gum twigs and gum yeah, bark yes, is the yes, best roughage. Yeah, that's good because yeah. it's dry and, and yeah, and, and, it, and it, it it's shredder. brittle and it and it cleans out all the. So there sort you of go. Yeah. Stuff. So do use your mussel shells. Uh, they might be something of a challenge to break up small enough to sort of just throw them in the garden and not find them ever again. Um, mm. But if you do have a commercial shredder or a garden shredder in the place, throw them through the shredder. That works really well. Well, I, I thought I'd just get the hammer out and give them a bit of a pounding. <laughs> yeah, I think that's an excellent idea. I did find an oyster shell in my garden the other day, and I think that's from three Christmases ago. Yeah, it would be. Uh, they, they, they're there for possibly millennia. Yeah. Um, but if you chop them up... Um, they do have quite a lot of calcium in them, so uh, it's very good for the garden. And the chippy bits of it are quite good in a clay soil because they've got a different yes. different sort yes. of texture, so they'll help keep a clay soil open, whereas humus eventually leaches through and disappears. So unless you keep topping up your humus in a clay soil, it goes back to a clay soil. But things like oyster and mussel shells and coarse sand and gravel and things like that, mm. they're there forever. Yeah. Mm. I think I'll put them in the compost rather than put them on a particular area so that, you know, I'm not changing um, that particular area too much, if you know oh, what I mean. You won't. I'll... I mean, for one meal worth of mussel sh- uh, mm. shells, you're not going to do any harm to the garden. And the issue with putting things through the compost, things like that aren't going to change their constituencies in the compost heap. So I'd be just sprinkling it straight over the garden. Okay, thank you. Excellent. Pleasure. Thank you, as always. It's great to uh, enjoy the program every week. Since Thanks. Stephen, I came to your nursery and you told me you were heading off in the morning to a program uh, for a 7.30 start. Uh, I've listened ever since. So oh, fantastic. Always, it's a joy. So well, I do you. try and promote this program because I have to say it can't promote itself terribly well being a community radio station, so it's word of mouth that gets out there to let people know that we're here. And... I mean, at the risk of sounding terribly immodest, and I'm saying it for all of the people who work on this program, it's the best one on the air. I agree. Mm. You know, so there is one. Too. There's one in Western Australia mm. that's also extremely good. Mm. But otherwise, I think we're Western Australian one and us are the best in the country. Yeah. So there you go. So mm. everybody needs to know about the Three CR Gardening Program. Good on Thank you, Anne. You. Thank you. I tell them so. <laughs> good. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Bye. 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 Yes, I, I think this is true. We are, um, and as it's not us. Mm. It's because we are such a large team yeah. and we bring such a variety. Exactly, because we have experts in all, almost every facet of horticulture that come on this program, so there can't be too many other places out there that offer that. Mm, absolutely. Now, Greg, a plant. Yes, go on, Greg. All right. Um, I don't know. Yeah, maybe the crocus. Yeah. Because uh, we were talking about bulbs earlier mm. uh, with, the, with the DAF, so... I used to get so much pleasure from growing crocuses. Um, I had a bit of a, a, a an episode where I'd bought some dodgy bulbs off a grower that contained bulb mites and virus bulbs, and it literally laid waste to my whole crocus collection, which was well over forty species at the time. Oh, that's most of which terrible. were imported seeds and mm. uh, carefully raised and mm. beautiful things that I'd never seen before. Uh, but I still have a few around the, the tougher ones. What I've bought in is uh, one of the Sibirai 
crocuses, which I think they've all been split into separate species oh, now yeah, or something. I, or, you could be right, Greg. I haven't um, kept up with crocuses. Yeah, no. So, so it's but see the Seberi crocuses are midwinter flowering ones. Um, and there's a beautiful selection. There's one I was going to pick to bring in, but it had just been a bit weathered too much, and it wasn't worth bringing in. I got them. Uh, as seeds from Marcus Harvey when when he was still around uh, selling his beautiful stuff, and he'd collected these from the wild, I think. And I'd I'd sowed I sowed maybe thirty seeds, and about twenty five bulbs came from that, and they were the most beautiful colours. Most of them were pure white, uh, but all all of them had a splotch of purple on them. So so you get these pure white, uh, beautiful crocus flowers with a dark patch somewhere on the outer petals, mm. um, and it could almost be a black-purple right up near the tip or a big stripe down the middle of the petals. Uh, absolutely stunning. This The one I've bought in, uh, a lot of the Seberi uh, species ones look similar. They're sort of a, a mid-purple colour with a yellow centre. Um, I remember as a teenager getting Seberi Firefly from you, Stephen, oh, yes, from I your nursery, Firefly. which is a really... And what, uh, what, the tricolour, yeah. which I think was one of my favourites too. It's got the... A bright yellow centre, deep purple outer petals, and then a white band that separates. Is that the right way? Yeah, around? I think that's the way it yeah. works. Uh, so Most had, of those have gone through my hands and out the other side yeah, yeah. now over uh, after all these years. But there you go. So if you're going to grow crocus, uh, there, there's uh, there's places you can buy. There's plenty of places you can buy the bulbs in Victoria, but there's also the uh, Crocus uh, Society. I think it's the Crocus Society. Um, so I started a Crocus Facebook page many years ago and it was one of those things where it was just like, oh, I'm going to show off all my Crocus flowers. So I started a group on Facebook and it sort of blew up a little bit and there's like about 5,000 members on this thing and the International Crocus group has, I've sort of given it to them to promote themselves on and Matt Murray, I think, in yeah. Sydney's the head in Australia. So there's a, an Australian Crocus seed exchange if you want to start a crocus collection, get seeds. Start from seeds. They don't take long to flower from seed. You get clean stock, so you won't have to worry about getting virus bulbs from some dodgy grow or something. <laughs> and um, it, 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 often if you get a species that you've never seen before, that first time it flowers, that's what you do it for. Yes, um, the excitement. There, there's plenty of seeds I've got from overseas, and I, and I couldn't find references to any of the books I had what this was. And the first time it sends up that flower, and it's that's that's what you do it for. Mm. Um, so yeah, they're great flowers, but just um, some of them are quite susceptible to virus and and other things. So um, and at one point I had there's a couple of years there where I had a crocus in flower every day from the last week of February to mid October. So yeah, they have yeah, a huge flowering huge period. flowering range mm. and and really pretty they, the individual flowers don't last very long but they're well worth uh having at least one pot of or mm. one in a little patch I in don't garden. mind something that I get a week or a fortnight out of if it's small. Yes. I don't want a great big flowering cherry that is as soon as the flower buds open the wind picks up and it blows all the flower petals off um, because it takes up a lot of space in the garden if mm. you're not getting value for the space it's taking up then I don't want the tree but things like crocuses and a lot of those other little ephemeral bulbs they don't take up any space no. to speak and of and you so. don't even notice them a yeah. lot when they're not uh, flowering and some of the crocuses do have okay leaves mm. at some points um, 
Uh, and zebra is one of those. It has quite uh, much smaller leaves. They're a bit broader, and you can see the little white variegated yes. stripe up the centre of them. Um, some of them get pretty big, but uh, and the other crocus I bought in was uh, crocus imperati, which has got this beautiful sort of tan gold outer petal. And you can see that looks like a yellow crocus from the outside. The one I picked, it hasn't opened in the in. Uh, it must have been a bit young. When that opens, it's deep royal purple inside. Yeah. So, so it's got yeah, these the gold. Doesn't give you any hint of it's what it's got. These look gold like. outer petals with dark brown black stripes, and then it opens up to this really deep beautiful purple. So that's a really good one. A really good species crocus as well. There you well, go. Sounds excellent. All right. Well, I've only got one more plant left, and we're starting to run out of time. Uh, I just bought in a weird ivy, Heterohelix erecta. Now, it's one of the bushy ivies. It's not a climber. Uh, and it's, uh, it's, as its name suggests, it grows erect. Uh, and its leaves sit in um, two ranks up the stem. So it has quite an interesting textural quality about it. And when it gets too tall and it can't support itself anymore, the stem will flop to the ground and then it'll start the whole process again. And the ends of the stems, because they're supported, will then grow straight up. So you end up with a shrub of upright stems with two ranked leaves. And so texturally in the garden, it's really interesting. And because it's not a climber, uh, it's not going to take over your garden. Uh, it won't run up walls and things. Um, uh, you can stake it and support it if you want to. Makes a fabulous textural pot plant. And of course, ivies make good indoor plants. Uh, so And it never flowers. So it can't flower and seed. So it's a sterile form. So it's completely benign. An ivy that is benign. Yes, exactly. What a wonderful thing to have. Yeah, and I think it's a fabulous plant. I got it years ago from an old gardener up on Mount Macedon called Marco Speck, who was a Swiss gardener. I don't know where Marco got it from, but I've had it ever since then, which Marco's been dead probably 30 years. Mm. Uh, And he was growing it up there, and I bought a plant from him. He had a little greenhouse in the garden that he worked in as a head gardener, and I've been growing a rector ever since, and I think it's a great plant. And where do you grow it? In the shade? Uh, Yeah, they grow very well in the shade. They'll cope with a fair bit of sunlight too. Uh, I mean, ivies being ivies are pretty adaptable plants, but most of them then become feral, whereas this one won't. Mm. And so so I think it's an ivy well worth and I've, considering. I've put that in a little uh, bonsai rock garden that I made as well, mm. which it suits quite well to as uh, it sort of sits in there and if it gets a bit out of hand, it, you just snap the twigs off and sort of put it back in its place yeah, a little bit. But exactly. it doesn't. It hasn't yet. Yeah, it's, it's not overly strong growing actually no. it doesn't it doesn't grow rapidly like the climbing ivies do mm. and most of the shrubby ivies tend to be fertile so they'll produce flowers and seeds whereas this one won't mm. so it's worthwhile considering and as i said before the photos have gone up on our um, um social media so there you go excellent well we have come to the end of our show today i hope you've enjoyed it and please listen again next week thank you mm.